This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I love this story on the Bloomberg. It says, all that drama for nothing. After almost three weeks of uh, a lot of excitement around Elon Musk's plan to take Tesla private, it turns out he's not going to do it after all. Let's bring in Dana Hall, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, follows Tesla for us. She joins us on the phone from our bureau in San Francisco, along with Eric Gordon, a friend of the show, professor at Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan, uh, Professor Gordon on the phone in Ann Arbor. Dana, you cover Tesla, the ups, the downs, the sideway moves, all of it. Where do we go from here now? Well, I think, you know, I mean, at least one, (laughs) at least this sort of saga chapter has closed. But, I mean, it just has raised so many more questions. I mean, I think the SEC investigation is now front and center because of all of the contradictions in Musk's statements over the past three weeks. Um, And, you know, I think the company is very much focused on, you know, we're just going to get back to business of making cars. So that, that gets into, well, what is their production looking like? Can they get to cash flow positive and profitability? Um, you know, I think every, I think there's a sense of relief that you know th- that they, that they sort of ended this all the speculation about whether they were going private or not quickly, as opposed to it dragging on. Um, but it's not like right. these questions are now are going away. And you know, and, and Musk has said over and over that he doesn't want to raise additional debt or equity this year. So can they can they survive financially without doing that? So, Eric, come on in here. You know, from your perspective, you know, as someone who sees the world of M&A, the world of governance, uh, the worlds of CEOs, I was going to say behaving badly, just behaving. What does this say about the leadership uh, of Tesla going forward and what lies ahead for Elon Musk himself? Hey, behaving badly is okay in this in this case. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I think Dana's right. You know, um, we're not right back where we started from in terms of Elon and his role. Um, you know, the board would have us say, would have us think, well, they have full confidence in him, and yeah, we're just going to concentrate on cars. But what Elon has demonstrated over the past few months, um, aggravated a lot by this last episode is that uh, the board should really be questioning whether he's the right person to take it forward. You know, I got to say, Jason, on your recommendation, I started watching Succession. And I watch, you know, as, you know, the CEO, the head of the company, you know, 80-year-old, you know, is incapacitated. And uh, it's the beginning. I think I'm in the second or third one. Uh, And what goes on in the board, you know, like looking at who's running the company and so on and so forth. I mean, Dana, are shareholders or investors saying, you know, it's time for Elon to go? And and what what is a Tesla without Elon Musk? Well, no, I don't think people are saying it's time for Elon to go. I mean, Elon is the brand. He's the face of the company. He, you know, is the chairman. He's the CEO. He's the largest shareholder. I mean, people love this company in part because they love him. And, you know, these are shareholders that awarded him an enormous pay package just this spring. So I don't think I don't think the call I don't think people are calling for him to go. I think a lot of people would love to see a seasoned manufacturing executive 
be hired as like COO, but I'm not hearing any calls for for him to be ousted. I, I think if he left the company, I mean, I don't, the company wouldn't really exist. Right. <laughs> I mean, see, he's yeah. too integral to the brand. Um, well, speaking of, brand, speaking of brands that are well-known, Uber, a headline, uh, Jason, crossing the Bloomberg. Yeah, Toyota said to, is said to be set to invest $500 million in Uber at a $72 billion valuation. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. We're going to dig into that a little bit more and bring it to you. But that is a, a remarkable number and an interesting new partner into the mix there, which obviously all of this around the car business affects – uh, everyone, but n- notably Tesla. So, Eric, I want to ask you a question because you sent over something that that you wrote, and it goes directly to to Dana's point about what role this particular CEO plays. A lot of people have made the Steve Jobs comparison. You think there's a different comparison that could be made that could lead to a happier outcome here? Yeah, you know, I like the Google comparison. I I like it the fact that the, the two geniuses who started the company company would be nothing without them, Sergey Brin and Larry Page, stepped aside and brought in Eric Schmidt, not to be the number two, actually to be the CEO. Mm-hmm. And and it made all the difference in the world. The adult in the Google. room, right? He was he was the adult supervision in the playpen. They didn't lose the guys in the playpen. And now, of course, Larry Page became CEO. But here's the difference. Larry Page was willing to do that. He was willing to listen to Eric. He was there to learn. Hard to picture Elon learning anything from anybody. Right. Hey, Dana, how much time does, though, Tesla have still? Because you've got all of the well-known automakers um, just kind of nipping at his heels when it comes to electric vehicles, right? You know, you've got to give Elon credit for kind of waking up the auto industry and saying, there's another way to do this, folks. And, and, and yes, we can deliver a lot of electric vehicles and has made consumers look at, I think, EVs in a different way. Um, how much time, though, does he have? Well, I think, I mean, certainly there will be more, um, you know, competition from electric vehicles. Out, you know, Audi is coming out with its, with its you know, e-tron later this year. But I, I think that most people who are brand loyal to Tesla will stay with Tesla. I think the question is whether people who typically, who currently drive, you know, gas cars are going to switch in higher numbers to electric. But, you know, a lot of people who own a Tesla, like, they own more than one, and they're not going to, they're not going to switch from that. But, you know, yeah. the average consumer who wants to buy buy an affordable electric car, they will certainly have more options out there. Very good. Dana Hull, our technology reporter covering all things Tesla, the hardest working woman in Hollywood over the past couple of weeks, that's for sure, joining us from our bureau in San Francisco. And Eric Gordon, professor of the Ross School of Business at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Always great to be with you as well. Yeah. So, Carol, this story, certainly more <laughs> chapters to come, that's and, for sure. And as Dana pointed out at the beginning, you've got still SEC regulators looking into this because this certainly inf- impacted uh, the short sellers and a lot of investors. So, more to come. All right, folks, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser along with Jason Kelly, and you are listening to Bloomberg Radio. All right, working together apparently is happening again between the United States and Mexico, at least. NAFTA 2.0. Carol, we'll see exactly uh, where this leads. To help us break down the news, Brian Jacobson, senior multi-asset strategist for Wells Fargo Asset Management. They oversee $496 billion. He is joining us on the phone from Menominee Falls, 
Wisconsin. Brian, great to be with you. So big headlines here on a Monday. It was telegraphed over the weekend that the U.S. and and Mexico were coming together. And as you heard uh, Charlie Pellet talk about a hastily arranged presser in the Oval Office, including the president of Mexico and the president of the United States. What does this mean for the markets from your estimation? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And it is pretty exciting to uh, see this type of announcement, especially since there's a lot of the uh, angst and anxiety around uh, uh, U.S. uh, trade relations. So this is a a nice reprieve from that. Uh, I actually think that this could result in almost a a change in perception of market participants about uh, what a lot of the rhetoric or bluster, if you want to call it that, uh, is related to trade coming out of the United States really is uh, intended to accomplish. It's not about uh, closing off the borders necessarily to trade. It's more about trying to uh, renegotiate the trade deals uh, to modernize them, uh, so to speak, to include uh, not just goods, but also services, uh, perhaps intellectual property. Um, But uh, I think that this is, in a way, kind of vindicates the views of a lot of people who have been trying to uh, say that a lot of the rhetoric coming out of the White House is more about uh, negotiating as opposed to drawing lines in the sand. So, Brian, are you saying that would you be telling uh, your clients and investors in, at general, in general that President Trump and his team are more bark than bite? <laughs> well, no, I don't I'm serious. Yeah. Well, but I mean, but, uh, but that's kind of what you're saying, right? That, you know, this is just kind yeah, of how I mean, he acts. Know, in a way, though, yeah, I, I think that you do have to accept that there is some bark, though, behind that bite, uh, as was evidenced last week when the actual increase in tariffs went into effect against mm-hmm. uh, Chinese goods, the $16 right. billion dollars worth. So, you know, the, the bark itself uh, is really only effective if people believe that there is bite behind it. And so uh, I, I think that's really the message that I would uh, go, uh, you know, carry forward with people is that it, it's not just all talk that, uh, indeed, if uh, they don't get a good deal uh, with or what they perceive to be a good deal, uh, that they, they are willing to actually impose uh, the additional tariffs as evidenced by what's going on with China. But that's also interesting in the sense that the, uh, allegedly the Chinese negotiator said, you know, we're just going to wait until after the midterms. But, you know, uh, we know we're not going to make any progress here <laughs> in, until those midterm elections are done. So why even bother? Why even waste the time? Right. And, you know, we had headlines, Brian, just in the last little bit that uh, the essentially the, the foreign minister, the, the counterpart to the secretary of state for Canada, Christia Freeland, is on her way to Washington now, presumably to pick this up from a Canadian perspective. From where you sit, how does Canada play into all of this and how how important is it that something gets done fast in order to ratify this or at least get it to the U.S. Congress? Well, I think that, uh, you know, President Trump, uh, with his tweet this morning and uh, even with the press conference where he said that maybe this should be referred to as the U.S.-Mexico trade agreement, uh, to uh, number one, that fits with the narrative that he's trying to pursue bilateral deals instead of multilateral deals. And it also uh, really, I think, puts the pressure on Canada to say that if they don't want to make similar concessions, uh, that uh, they're not uh, going to get a deal. Now, that that could obviously have uh, major implications for you know, supply chains, but not quite as many as perhaps, you know, for between the United States and Mexico, just because of the the flow of goods, uh, mainly goods uh, between the two countries. 
Uh, now, for our portfolios, uh, we've been uh, you know, bullish on uh, cyclical stocks and emerging markets in general. And that was kind of the emerging markets part was kind of painful <laughs> for the year-to-date part so far. So we're hoping that this marks sort of a turn in that sentiment. Brian Jacobson, Senior Multi-Asset Strategist from Wells Fargo Asset Management, joining us from Menominee Falls in Wisconsin. Thank you so much for your perspective there. Interesting to see where this one yeah. goes, Carol. I mean, especially the Canadian element that, that Brian was just talking to us about. because, and, and what he said, I find so fascinating. We are not living in a multilateral world right now, at least from the Washington perspective. Yeah, does it, and we're definitely seeing it play out that way. And I'm just, I am curious now, you know, what happens next with Canada and other nations as a whole. So this is one of the most interesting stories in this most recent edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Gina Smilik and some colleagues took a look at stagnant wages in the face of incredibly high demand uh, for skilled labor going deep into several industries. Gina is here with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio to tell us all about it. So, Gina, what did you find in, in this piece? And Actually, let me start by saying what sent you looking for this? Right. So we were interested in sort of a more microeconomic look at what was going on with wages, because what we've been hearing for years now is that the labor market is so tight, employers can't find workers. But for some reason, you just don't see that in the pay data. At this level of unemployment, you would expect to see much higher rates of wage gains. And so we were really curious at sort of kicking it why we're still seeing these tepid, this tepid improvement um, in another way. And so I had recently done a story that kind of went to three geographies with really tight labor markets and asked this question. And so we were thinking, you know, how else could we get at this? And we thought an interesting way to do it would be to look at a couple of specific industries where we've seen really tight labor markets for a sustained period of time. And so we picked these three, construction, trucking, and childcare, because we had been hearing about them for just years, labor shortages. Um, so let's walk, because I love the way you do it, and you actually talk to companies and what they're dealing with. Um, let's talk about the home builders and the construction industry, because we have certainly, we have talked to various CEOs in the home building industry, and they say that's their biggest concern, finding workers. So tell us what you found out when you kind of really drilled down. Yeah, and so this was a really interesting one. So we benefited hugely here from having a colleague in Atlanta, which has been one of the hottest building markets in the country. The great Steve Matthews, I the should point Steve out. The great Steve Matthews. And so Steve went around and, and chatted with a bunch of builders there and sort of asked this question, you know, even in Atlanta, we're not seeing wage gains in home building. Why aren't you guys paying more if you're so worried about workers? And what they kept telling him is just there's no one in the pipeline. You know, even if we raise wages more, there aren't folks who have these sort of ready-made skills that we need because we need a lot of people in semi-skilled trades. There's like not the bodies, you mean. Exactly. He's saying there's no one there. We'll just end up paying more and we'll still be running into the same problem. And so that was an interesting um finding to us because it just was this sort of instance where these, whether it's true or not, these companies very much believe that they cannot find more people who will sort of fulfill their needs in a timely manner, um, even with bigger wage increases. And, and what about childcare? And and I will confess that we did an interview, you did an excellent interview with us um, for the weekly Business Week show. And this was one that I found so fascinating because it's not obvious, and there's some nuance here as to why 
wages are what they are in in the land of childcare. So childcare is a really interesting story because it is so structural. The reason that wages are are held down there, basically, to have high quality childcare, you can only have a small number of children mm-hmm. per every person who's watching them, and almost by definition, that means childcare is either grossly unaffordable for families or grossly underpaying for the people who are working. So the, the example I like to use is you have to have one childcare worker per three infants for high quality childcare. If those three infants families are paying 12000 each a year, which is a pretty hefty chunk of change, right. the person who's watching them is only making 36000 before licensing fees, which is, right. are quite expensive, and before rent and utilities, startup costs, all those things. And so it's just very difficult at a time when families aren't making more for childcare workers to earn anymore. I, I found that so interesting because yeah. it's this sort of knock-on, almost derivative effect of this broader trend that's happening. Yeah, exactly. What's also interesting, though, I think about childcare is how much – I was just talking – have a conversation with someone today because so much is off the books too, right? So we don't know a lot of what's going on. Um Talk to us, too, about the trucking industry. Tell us what's going on there. Again, a shortage of workers. Yes. And so the trucking industry has been a really interesting one to watch for the last couple of years because we keep hearing about a shortage of workers. We keep not seeing very intense pay gains across the sector. I think Matt, who Matt Bosler looked into this one, and I think he found sort of a two-part answer to the, the why question. Part of it is that there are some structural things going on in trucking that make it hard for you to see wage increases in any sort of fast way. Like a lot of independent operators lease out their trucks, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's just the way the thing is structured. Part of it is just that we seem to be on the leading edge. He did talk to a truck company that said, you know, we recently really raised our wages and we're seeing good payback from that. You know, like we, we are seeing this sort of this tide turn. And so it could be that companies are just finally getting to the point where they're desperate enough that they're ready to hike pay. So that's what the Fed's hoping for. You know, I remember doing, a, I'm trying to think, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago, of um, one of our Bloomberg Live events, and it had to do with small and medium-sized businesses and yeah. people talking about, these are small business owners, and they too were struggling to find workers, but they talked about like welders and things like that, the machinists that they just couldn't find. Uh, and they said part of the problem is you have a younger generation who are not at all interested in these types of jobs, and there's kind of a stigma, certainly here in America, versus like you go to Europe and people don't mind doing those jobs. But I do wonder about where are we going to find if a younger generation doesn't want to take on these jobs? Uh, and then you bring in the issue of immig- you know, immigration. Do we need to make sure that we have those flows to, to fill some of these jobs? Yeah. And I think it's an interesting question because it does become this sort of self-perpetuating circle, right? Mm-hmm. You are not willing to give your welder or your builder a raise because there isn't a pipeline of trained workers. Millennials look at those jobs and they're like, oh, they're not great jobs. But if you're not giving anyone raises, they still don't look like great exactly. jobs, right? Exactly. So, so you're not getting that pipeline. So I do think it's it's a tough situation, and I, I think it's tough for the companies, and it's also tough for the people who are working in these industries. Absolutely. Gina Smilik, economics and Federal Reserve reporter here at Bloomberg News for us. We used to call it NAFTA. We're going to call it the United States-Mexico trade agreement. We'll get rid of the name NAFTA. has a bad connotation because the United States was hurt very badly by NAFTA for many years. And now it's a really good deal for both countries. 
So that's President Trump speaking earlier today at the White House as he announced this new agreement between the United States and Mexico, notably calling it essentially not NAFTA, uh, Carol, but an agreement in principle right. uh, that still will need to be ratified by the U.S. Congress, although we did hear commentary from the Mexican government that it does uh, fit what their uh, legislature was looking for. So more to come on that as Canada comes to the table at this point to help us understand where we stand now and where we go from here. We bring in Clayton Allen. He is vice president of special situations at Height Capital Markets down in Washington. He joins us on the phone. Clayton, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So where where do we go from here? I mean, obviously, this announcement was made today. It was widely anticipated that this would come down. Canada, as I said, on its way to Washington in the form of Christian Freeland, the, the trade minister. Uh, what do you see happening next? Well, I think it's going to be an all-out push to get some deal done by the end of the week. Um, without a deal by the 31st or maybe even early on the morning of September 1st, there doesn't really seem to be a way to hold to that timeline that allows Pinyonieta to sign a new agreement by December 1st before leaving office. And what happens if that doesn't happen in, in your estimation? <laughs> Well, if, if that doesn't happen, I think life gets a little bit harder for uh, for, for AMLO. Uh, the first thing he would do, if, if we don't have a timeline that allows Nieto to sign the deal, then it kind of falls to AMLO. And right. that gets to be the first thing that he handles when he, he comes into office. AMLO, of course, being the new Mexican president who yes, is sir, set the, to take uh, uh, office later this year. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the president-elect. Manuel Lopez Obrador. Um, hey, uh, Clayton, let me ask you, uh, you guys do advisory firm, you, you know, advisory work, research, investment banking, all that good stuff. How does what's happening in Washington right now change what you're telling your clients? Um, I don't know that it really changes what we're telling people. I think that this is, you know, to be honest, this is actually kind of consistent with the way that the president has negotiated or really handled negotiations for a variety of other topics, whether that's trade negotiations or even his negotiations with North Korea. We've kind of seen very similar tactics at play in each one of those instances, and it really hasn't changed in this one either. So, Clayton, I got to ask you, you um, worked, I believe, for uh, Senator Mary Landro. You also worked for the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. You are familiar. I should also point out you're a graduate of LSU, so you know something about uh, college football as well as uh, Georgetown, Hoya Saxa. Um, just throwing that in there. But you are – what's important is you are intimately familiar with the ways of Capitol Hill. How is this being received as you talk to people uh, in and around Congress? I know it's sort of a sleepy time in general, but how does this play through the legislative aspect here? So that's I think that's the most important question that no one's really asking. Um, you know, I think it depends, as everything does, on whether you ask a Democrat or Republican. Right. But in general, people in Congress or members of Congress – outside of a few notable exceptions, seem to be at least a little bit frustrated with the president's uh, willingness to kind of keep them up to date about what he's doing. Mm -hmm. It seems like he's done a lot of things sort of unilaterally in a host of trade negotiations and other negotiations for that matter. And so people really feel like they've been given the cold shoulder. And that doesn't really help uh, build up a lot of support for what you're about to present to them when you have people like Kevin Brady, who chair, how, chair of House Ways and Means, who's the, who's one of the, if not the most important members of Congress when it comes to trade policy, saying, look, 
I'm fine with you renegotiating stuff, but you have to keep us in the loop, and you have to be adhere. You have to adhere to the negotiating objectives we laid out under Trade Promotion Authority. So, well, I'm just thinking if I was having this conversation around a family dinner table, that some folks would say, mm-hmm. "Well, you know, Congress has no one to blame but themselves because they, you know, have over the last few years not been able yeah, to get much done." So, presidents, President Obama did it too with executive orders and, and taking, you know, initiatives on on his own, and we're seeing it with President Trump. I mean, this is kind of the world that we're in right now. Oh, absolutely. I don't disagree in the slightest. And I think that people are absolutely right to say that, yeah, look, a a lot of Congress's complaints really do boil down to the fact that they could have done a lot more at a lot of different places. But that doesn't alleviate the fact that to get a new NAFTA agreement into law, you still have to get Congress on board. Mm -hmm. And to get Congress on board, the best way to do it, really the only way to do it, is to go through the fast-track authority that Trade Promotion Authority lays out. And it's up to Congress if they feel that the president's adhered to all the requirements that TPA makes of him. But just quickly, 20 seconds, is it different because you've got midterms uh, looming? And so (laughs) Congress is going to say, well, we got to do something. Absolutely. It is vastly different because there might be a Democratic House next year. The most important thing Trump did today was say that he's going to get rid of the current NAFTA once we get a new deal, because that puts leverage not on our negotiating partners, but on Congress. Next year, they get to choose. Do you take Trump's new NAFTA, whatever it's called, or no NAFTA at all? Politics makes it interesting, that's for sure. Clayton Allen, thank you. Vice President of Special Situations at uh, Height Capital Markets. Uh, Clayton joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. I feel like everything we talk about right now, Jason, we have to look through the lens to some extent of the midterm elections. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I think this becomes a lot more complicated yeah. if it goes from just a political win to something that the White House then has to sell up the street or up Pennsylvania Avenue, as it were. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Monday in August. Carol Master along with Jason Kelly. Michael Sheldon is our next guest. He's executive director, chief investment officer at uh, RDM Financial Group. Michael joining us uh, on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Hey, Michael, good to have you here with us. Here we've got the market moving ahead again. New records. Um, I don't know. Uh, we know we hit uh, with the record last week of it being the longest bull market ever on record. How do you see uh, market internals at this point? Well, I think uh, the important thing is after debating what's going to happen to the market over the past several months from the peak back in when the market peaked back in January, all the major markets seem to have posted um, new 52-week highs over the past day or two. And overall, we're, you know, we think that the, the direction is still positive. We don't see a recession head looking out over the next few quarters. Uh, there are certainly some big picture items which uh, you know, could affect the markets over the next several years, and we're certainly aware of those. It's not all smooth sailing, but we think things look fairly positive. In terms of market internals, uh, it's interesting looking at where the market is today versus back in January when the market posted a high. Uh, today, there aren't quite as many hot, new hot 52-week highs in the market as there were. We haven't seen today's closing data, but there aren't quite as many 52-week highs versus January. 
Uh, one of the other things that we're watching is the percent of stocks above their 200-day moving average. Mm-hmm. So back in January, there were over 80% of the market, the S&P 500 posted um, were above their 52-week, uh, excuse me, above their 200-day moving average. Today, that number is 65%. So while the markets are posting all-time highs, and we are positive on it, uh, the advanced decline line, for example, is at an all-time high. There are some things to just keep an eye on. And showing you that not everybody's participating in the recent run-up versus what we saw earlier this year, right? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of talk among us, you know, sort of technology and market geeks is why is the advanced decline line from the market continuing to go up, but the percent of stocks above their 200-day moving average is still below its high six months ago. And that's because it only takes – my explanation is it only takes a penny for the advanced decline line to go up for every stock. But there are a lot of lagging sectors like utilities, telecom, REITs, and those stocks still have a ways to go to improve to get back above their 200-day moving average. And Michael, you know, this this kind of sort of dichotomy that we seem to be living in where the United States continues to chug along, to say the least, and yet we're starting to see some weakness, at least in selective uh, emerging markets. How do you game that out? And how does that change your strategy, if at all, as you think globally? Well, that's a really good question. Um, Earlier this year, we were looking at our foreign global exposure, and we had about, as a firm, we had about 15% in overseas markets, and we were we were thinking about actually increasing that amount after several years, by the way, in which we had no foreign exposure. So we looked at the world at the beginning of the year, and we, we really felt that the United States would be the best positioned and experience further growth as a result of recent tax cuts, and that really turned out to be the case. Um, the United States really looks to be the best positioned around the world. However, we can't just grow by ourselves because it really is a, a global world we export and our corporate profits come from a lot of our corporate profits come from overseas so it's important to keep an eye on overseas growth in areas like Europe China some emerging markets like Turkey and Argentina for example are starting to show some weakness uh, For right right now, we're just watching those changes, and if it starts to spread, for example, to the United States, which isn't our base case, that would certainly be a cause for concern. So when playing, though, the U.S. market or investing in the U.S. market right now, Michael, uh, how how is it? Is it through the mid-caps? Is it the smaller cap names? Um, How do you do it? Because if you look at uh, small caps, they're certainly outperforming uh, your mid and large caps. Well, you have to keep in mind we're also kind of 10 years into this, almost 10 years into this economic cycle. So we want to we want to have exposure to the broad equity markets, but we do tend to favor large cap, blue chip type of stocks. And we have different models in our traditional equity models. Uh, those are more blue chip names. In our income model, we focus on the dividend growers as opposed to the dividend yielders, the higher yielders. But we do we do have some exposure to small and mid cap stocks. And in terms of sectors, um, based on the fact we see the economy growing, we still favor technology, financials, healthcare, and industrials. And so what worries you the most at this point, Michael Sheldon? You mentioned you know, emerging markets and, and maybe thinking about that in a different way, closer to home. What, what's on your radar that, that tops the worry list? Well, I think over the very near term, uh, well, actually, let me take a take a longer-term look. The bigger things we worry about are the Fed raising rates too aggressively. Mm-hmm. If we look back over the past several cycles, they've had a poor track record of raising rates and not causing a downturn. So we are watching the Fed. We heard from uh, Powell last Friday, and he's as worried about rising rates too quickly as he is for not raising them quickly enough. So right. um, 
we see rates rising gradually there. We're worried about rising debt levels in the U.S. economy. The uh, tax cuts that uh, President Trump put in place really is going to raise debt levels for, for future generations to come. So that's something we'll have to worry about. And then, uh, in addition, we're worrying about growth overseas. One other thing, which isn't on a lot of the uh, investment radars, is we may be actually surprisingly running out of workers. So the ability to, to <laughs> have just, enough workers in the country. Well, it's funny. We just talked about that with our Gina Smilek. And I do wonder if our, our lack of uh, workers, are, how, what it's going to do in terms of limiting uh, future economic growth and what that means for corporate profits. That could be a big deal. You're absolutely right. I wrote a blog about this a couple of weeks ago, and yeah. if you look at data from the um, from the JOLT job survey, which only goes back to 2000, and then you look at the number of unemployed, there are actually more people in the country looking for work than there are unemployed. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard to believe that's the case, but yeah. so we'll need to create more jobs. Uh, the immigration policy in the country isn't uh, very good, and we'll need to solve that as well. All right, Michael Sheldon, thanks for finding some time for us on this Monday. Michael Sheldon is Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer of at RDM Financial Group. Michael joining us on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. We're just uh, minutes away from the closing bell. We've got a rally underway off our highs, but uh, hovering near them. The Dow up about uh, 243 points and the NASDAQ up 67. Carol Masser, Jason Kelly, Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.